This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, sitting in for Josh King, here's Jeff Smith. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on the POTUS channel. I'm Jeff Smith, urban policy professor at the New School and former Missouri State Senator, sitting in for Josh King. The first campaign manager of the modern political era was Mark Hanna, who ran McKinley's famous front porch campaign in 1900. In many ways, it was quite unlike today's presidential campaigns. McKinley made no pilgrimages to meet and greet voters in Iowa or New Hampshire, but rather greeted them from his front porch thanks to the free passes given by railroad companies looking to buy goodwill from a McKinley administration. There was, however, one big similarity between that campaign of a century ago and today's campaigns, one embodied by Hannah's response when asked to explain McKinley's win. There were two keys to victory, he said. The first one was money. I can't remember what the second was. Indeed, Hannah had persuaded several of the so-called robber barons of the era, wealthy corporate chieftains who ran the nation's biggest firms, to donate millions of dollars towards a marketing campaign which produced millions of pamphlets and handbills promoting McKinley and trashing opponent William Jennings Bryan. For decades after that, there were few regulations on campaign finance, and many of our presidents and aspiring presidents took advantage of this. For instance, as a young congressman trying to revitalize the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Lyndon Johnson literally received sacks of cash from CEOs that he distributed to vulnerable colleagues as a way to gather chits and build his own power base. In the wake of Watergate, reformers passed some of the nation's first campaign finance laws, limiting contributions to $1,000 each and requiring full disclosure. But soon, enterprising politicians found loopholes, including soft money, the unregulated contributions to state and national parties that led to accusations of President Clinton renting the Lincoln bedroom of the White House out in exchange for contributions to the Democratic Party. These revelations, of course, became the impetus for reformers to propose more stringent regulations, culminating in the 2002 signing of McCain-Feingold. Yet again, though, the law of unintended consequences was at work. Soon, there was more money flowing into the system than ever, from ever more shadowy places. Unfortunately, it was a violation of this very law against coordination that ultimately led to a prison sentence of a year and a day for yours truly. In any case, mega donors like Sheldon Adelson, who gave $16 million to Newt Gingrich in 2012 and countless millions to others, have made the days of $50,000 contributions positively quaint. This week, we'll be talking to two reporters covering men who each committed to spend over $100 million on elections this year. And our first guest is Ken Vogel, chief investigative reporter for Politico and the author of a book called Big Money. And it's got a long subtitle. So, Ken, I'm going to let you give us the subtitle. What is that again? All right. Thanks, Jeff. The uh, subtitle is $2.5 billion, One Suspicious Vehicle and a Pimp on the Trail of the Ultra-Rich Hijacking American Politics. And it's uh, due out in June from Public Affairs Books. Wow. That is quite a mouthful. What yeah, was th- this is the first edition. Oh. However, there was an earlier working subtitle that is uh, the cover is still featured on the cover that is featured on Amazon, and that is uh, it's big money, big egos, bigger stakes, and the biggest new game in politics. So I think that was uh, a, a little redundant, and this is an effort to uh, 
be a little more colloquial and also capture a little bit of that uh, this-town magic that Mark Leibovich was so uh, effective at leveraging onto the bestsellers list. Yeah, wasn't he brilliant the way he anti-marketed marketed the book? Yeah, it was great, and uh, he... Uh, you know, made sort of a selling point of the fact that he was very much a part of this very culture that he uh, was purporting to pull back the curtain on. Do you think there's anyone who has canceled a lunch with him or refused to have lunch with him? I don't think there's anyone, do you? I mean, it was very selective and interesting in the folks that he was more aggressive towards because there weren't a lot of them. The, the, the folks who were real power players came up pretty well. I mean, maybe a little embarrassing, but only in, 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 to the extent that uh, it was sort of a public exhibition of what, uh, what folks sort of knew it to be their uh, general approaches to life in Washington uh, privately. But the folks that he really went after aggressively were really not the power players and not the folks who he had to worry about canceling the lunches. So if there were any lunches canceled, I imagine they were probably from folks who he doesn't really need too much going forward. Mark treated me very kindly in the book, and he didn't need me at all. And I'm a very small fish, so I appreciated that, uh, at least. But, uh, yeah, he had me in a scene with Terry McAuliffe, which, which brings us to the conversation at hand today about fundraising uh, in politics. Terry McAuliffe, probably the most legendary Democratic fundraiser alive today, would you say? Yeah, that's right. But what was interesting is he was very much from a past era, not to say that he wouldn't thrive in the new big money era that is the subject of my book and is also uh, the subject of some recent articles that we've written, but he didn't really have a chance to do that. However, the fact that he was so part, so much a part of really a uh, sort of foundational part of the Clinton fundraising machine, which is really the biggest fundraising machine that we've seen in uh, sort of modern American democratic politics, uh, you know, raises the stakes and raises, uh, I think, the, the interest level in how Hillary Clinton will do uh, if she runs for president and uh, has a sort of significant big money infrastructure behind her, which, which certainly appears to be forming. She has all these folks like Terry McAuliffe, who were just the kings and queens of the old uh, big money fundraising. Now they'll get a chance to really test themselves in, in this new Wild West era where anything goes, and it's, it's almost tough to fathom how much money a Hillary Clinton super PAC would be able to raise with folks like Terry McAuliffe behind it. But you know what? I don't think there's, there's anything prohibiting him. You know, Rahm Emanuel, even as the mayor of Chicago, went out, you know, for the last, for like a critical period during the Obama campaign and was raising money, I think, for priorities, wasn't he? Yeah, he, uh, he started to do that during the Democratic <laughs> National Convention, but there was a big teacher's strike in, uh, right. in Chicago, so he kind of pulled away. And, of course, that is a, will be an issue, is an issue with, with a lot of these folks. It's sort of the optics of this. You know, fundraising generally, but particularly this big money super PAC fundraising. You know, if you're if you have something else that sort of the public regards as more important on the docket, like ending a teacher strike or running the state, the Commonwealth of Virginia, you know, it might not look so good to be out there uh, uh, hustling seven figure checks for the Hillary Clinton super PAC. On the other hand, there's two quirks of Virginia state law which may make it more amenable to for Terry McAuliffe to do it, which is that, number one, there are no limits on donations, but number two, there is a single-term limit on governors. So he can't run for re-election, uh, so he doesn't have to worry that much about it unless he aspires to run for Senate someday. Uh, but also, he can raise as much money in now, whereas before when he was raising money, he didn't have as much leverage. I mean, he could leverage his access, but now he can leverage gubernatorial appointments and anything else. I mean, I don't want him to... I don't, want, I don't want him to get. Indi- I don't want him to get indicted. Of course, like uh, the last governor of Virginia. But right. 
Uh, but but it will be you know, interesting. We actually asked him, uh, well, first of all, we wrote a story during the early stages of his campaign for governor this time, not the last time, suggesting that it was kind of like a beta test run for a Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign, not only for the bundlers and the fundraisers who we reported were being told by folks very close to Terry that, hey, if you want to get on the ground floor of a Hillary Clinton campaign, you should write Terry a big fat check, but also for the staff, a lot of the staff who... Uh, uh, were uh, high up in that campaign, have gone on to uh, prominent roles in other parts of the Democratic Party and could be well-positioned to uh, slide into a Hillary Clinton presidential campaign if and when it launches by virtue of their having sort of done their time with, uh, with, with, with Terry, who, of course, is a consummate Clinton insider. Whenever you're talking about money in politics, it's hard not to talk about Terry McAuliffe. But I want to get to an article that you and and your Politico comrade Alex Burns had this week. It was a terrific piece on Paul Singer, the billionaire hedge fund uh, fellow who's trying to bring the Republican Party back towards moderation on social issues like immigration and gay rights. Tell us a little bit more about Paul Singer's project and how it's going. Well, Paul Singer has been, uh, you know, for years a, a traditional de- uh, Republican big donor uh, and, and butler, and I say traditional not in terms of his issue stances, because as you as you alluded to, those are in fact very different from uh, those of the Republican base, particularly on on gay rights and, and immigration reform, where he's far more liberal and believes that the party is sort of hurting itself uh, by. Uh, continuing to adhere to this orthodoxy on on some of these issues that is you know becoming less and less mainstream according to uh, public opinion polls. So, but in the past, he he you know would be able to write his check. Maybe he'd be able to you know write max checks to a bunch of uh, candidates who maybe were Republicans who supported gay rights or were less uh, aggressively opposed to gay rights or immigration reform. Maybe write a big check to like a 527 or a 501c4 nonprofit group that wasn't subject to these federal limits, but there would be sort of a hard uh, limit. There would be uh, a point at which, no matter how many checks he was writing, he would not really have that much influence in shaping the party in its direction on these pet issues of his. Now, in this new era, this big money era after Citizens United, it really empowers big donors, single big donors like Paul Singer, uh, but particularly if they can bring together a, a group of, of very big donors who uh, whose big checks can either go into their own super PAC that takes a particular stance on a particular issue or back candidates who, who take that stance, or uh, they can direct their money to another super PAC or outside spending organization that uh, can be sort of uh, more aggressive than some of the groups that they might have traditionally given to uh, before there was this opening up of the big money flow. And so what he's trying to do is, is capitalize on that very dynamic that I just talked about and bring together uh, a number of big donors. We don't know the exact number, but uh, we've heard it's around 20 that have sort of bought into his effort, which sort of formed late last year in a meeting he had in a New York hotel ballroom where all these things seem to occur. Uh, and uh, brought a bunch of big donors together and, and basically talked about like how they thought that the Republican Party was going down the wrong path and what they could do in this new environment to steer it towards a course that they thought was more sustainable, both more reflective of their own issues, but also more sustainable in terms of winning national elections. They actually formed a nonprofit corporation that will facilitate future meetings and uh, some joint fundraising committees to give money to candidates who they did think uh, sort of embodied 
uh, at least parts of their uh, their sort of political perspective and their political portfolio. And now, uh, later this month, they're going to have a big meeting, a summit, if you will, out in uh, Colorado, where they're going to bring together a bunch of these donors with a bunch of candidates and Republican elected officials, including John Boehner, of course, the Speaker of the House, and uh, no slouch when it comes to steering the party, and, uh, and, and kick this thing off. And so far, we don't really know the, the shape that it's going to take, but that, that's kind of the general idea behind it, is that they want to leverage their new, uh, newly increased buying power in politics to steer the Republican Party in a way that they think uh, they're, that, you know, to, to, to sort of um, take on issues and, and uh, points of view that they think have been ignored. That makes sense, but do you think it makes sense to give millions of dollars, as Singer does, to gay rights and, and immigration groups and then turn around and give millions of dollars to Republicans who are going to vote for Mitch McConnell for leader, who's going to be constrained by, you know, kind of the base of the party and probably isn't going to be able to push those issues? Are you just spending money against yourself, kind of pissing it away? Yeah, there's, I think that there's a little bit of that because because there's a limit to how much influence these outside entities can have. If you're spending money that's like independent of the party, and that's how you have to spend it if you're spending these huge checks, because even though these uh, supreme the, the Supreme Court ruling in Citizens United 2010, and then a subsequent ruling in a fe- lower federal court called Speech Now that sort of set the stage for this new big money allowed all kinds of flexibility for these big donors. The one sort of um, requirement that these that these um, decisions left in place was that this big spending not be coordinated with the party or the party's candidates. So they can write these huge checks and hope that these huge checks uh, either get folks elected who will continue to uh, sort of look kindly on their issues or um, you know, uh, 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 sort of steer the party's debate, attempt to steer the party's debate, but then there's a limit because they can't come in and say, hey, we're giving you this money for this ad campaign, and if you do this, we'll, you know, we, those checks will keep coming, but if you don't, then the checks will dry up, and so there's a lot that's sort of left to chance, and you see that with the sort of preeminent example of this new type of model, the Koch brothers, where, you know, they had a huge impact on the 2010 election spending a couple hundred million dollars and helping Republicans elect a majority in the House of Representatives for the first time in years. But then once that uh, majority took over, I mean, they they actually, you know, adhered a little bit to this Tea Party perspective that uh, the Kochs wanted, but they didn't get what they wanted out of it. They didn't get, like, lower spending. In fact, it ended up sort of having a little bit of a, a backfire effect where it helped the Democrats. And so you can push all you want and have all the money you want on the outside, but still the people on the inside have power and still the voters have power so that no matter how much money you're spending, they can reject your argument on its face. And that, I think, is the bigger concern for the Paul Singer types. They want to see a Republican nominee for president in 2016 who supports gay rights. Well, if they're up on the air in, in Iowa pushing for that candidate, yeah. it could actually hurt that candidate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a, and, and that's kind of what Bloomberg faced, you know, when going up in, in Heartland states for a candidate who's for gun control. You know, are, are you really helping or should you just find a different issue to run your ad on is the question. Yeah, and that's sort of the same thing with this Tom Steyer guy, San right. Francisco hedge fund billionaire, who just this week uh, was the subject of a New York Times story that said that he was going to spend upwards of $100 million in the 2014 midterm elections pushing climate change. Well, I talked to a Republican operative the day that that story came out, actually, well, who, was, who was very well connected with the Republican big money operation, and he said to me, 
Yeah, you want to go up with like an anti-coal ad uh, against Nick Rahal in West Virginia? Go ahead. That's going to help Republicans, not you and not Democrats. Exactly. And we're actually having Nick Confessori on for the second half of the show today to talk about that Tom uh, Steyer piece. Um, this well, is I Jeff- won't steal Nick's thunder. Nick is, uh, can speak for himself. I wrote a great story, so I'll yeah. leave him to uh, explain what it all means. We're talking with Ken Vogel, chief investigative reporter at Politico. This is Jeff Smith sitting in for Josh King this week on polyoptics. Uh, another question for you, Ken. Um, I know Paul Singer, you know, he's got his band of, of friends, but he's also part of a larger effort by business groups, which I think Democrats sort of like to call it a Republican civil war. Uh, you know, trying to wrest back control of the party after two cycles in which Republicans, many think, ceded control of the U.S. Senate by nominating far-right candidates like Ken Buck and Todd Akin and Murdoch and Christine O'Donnell. Given that effort, you know, I'm, I'm curious, what do you think the state of the larger project is? Not just Paul Singer, but the U.S. Chamber, you know, the Main Street, you know, Republican Council you know, the Republican Leadership Council, all these groups that are working to try to pull the party back to the middle. In the wake of the the shutdown debacle, do you think those that side and th- that coalition has more traction? Uh, I think that that was probably part of the reasoning of, of a singer, the Singer Club, if you will, in, in getting together, that they thought that there was an opening here. Uh, however, I really see them as among the only uh, sort of groups of big donors who are actually, or the groups of, I should say, sort of big money interests who are actually sort of making good on this promise. A lot of the business entities that are that are sort of business entities first and foremost, as opposed to wealthy donors who happen to have a pro-business perspective, um, while they may share this this concern that you that you uh, pretty astutely articulated that the Tea Party is taking the Republican Party down the wrong path, and and that while they may have actually uh, you know made noises about uh, trying to take it back and take it down a different path, they're kind of inherently risk averse. And so every time that I hear the Chamber of Commerce talking about you know how business is going to go in and crush the Tea Party. I, I kind of scratch my head and wonder because in the past, you know, the Chamber of Commerce has made noises about like really getting involved. But, you know, a lot of these business entities, they do, uh, it's sort of like a, there's a lot of risk there for them and not a lot of reward. They do so well by working the process from the inside, sure. that is through lobbying sure. and through these capped hard money contributions to the parties or to the uh, leadership committees or even campaign committees of the chairman of the relevant committees that uh, handle issues that they care about, um, that to go out and put your name on a big ad campaign that is, is going against a candidate in a primary who may or may not win. And frankly, the, that's, that's the only place that this type of spending is valuable, when it can tip a race one way or the other, not when sure. you're just going, giving money to someone who you know is going to win to curry favor with them when they do win. Uh, you know, your candidate could lose in that case, and then you could, have, uh, you, you could have like an enemy in Congress, and that's not the way that big business, especially publicly traded corporations, have been so successful at navigating uh, the political process in Washington. They've been successful by minimizing enemies and sort of just giving to everyone who is in power. That's right. But what they found out, in, in my view, the last three or four years, is that that traditional strategy doesn't work anymore. You know what they always, everybody always ran for Congress by running against Congress, you know, in the same right. way that the Tea Party did. But for decades and decades, the, you know, the sort of business establishment, K Street, could figure out a way to give enough money to these folks who ran as insurgent candidates, who ran totally against the system, against the party leadership, against the machine. And then within a couple years, 
the enough money would sort of co-opt these people. And if if it wouldn't get their votes, it would at least get them to quiet down and not be such you know problems. And what I'm sensing is that it's just not working anymore. Yeah, you're right. There is more incentive for them to take these risks. But I do think there is this culture that has arisen around the way that the influence industry works and the way that big business has been able to curry influence in Washington, D.C., that is going to be hard to break, and I haven't seen any signs of it breaking. And I think that they're happy to have folks like Paul Singer fight their fight for them yeah. or you know, Mitch McConnell or John Boehner uh, and, and let, let it sort of uh, you know, play out as it might without sort of getting, you know, putting themselves in, in the crosshairs and hope that it doesn't get too bad. I mean, let's, let's not forget that even with the shutdown and even with the, uh, um, the, the debt ceiling issue uh, affecting the U.S. credit rating, you know, it affects the stock market at the margins, but there aren't a whole lot of Fortune 500 companies who really took major hits over that. They could, I mean, if this type of fiscal brinksmanship continues, uh, but they, so far none of them are being, like, too badly pinched by this. Uh, clearly it's on the radar. They would prefer that it not be happening, but I just don't see them uh, being sort of motivated enough to go put, uh, you know, uh, $10 million in against a, a Tea Party candidate in a Republican primary in some state where the, the Tea Party candidate could win and really take it out on them more than they have been. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. We're talking with Ken Vogel, chief investigative reporter for Politico and the author of uh, a forthcoming book, Big Money. Ken, I know it's tough to generalize, but let's go through a few of the big factions of party money these days in terms of individuals, not in terms of industries. First, you got the Kochs, right, who spent a few hundred million last cycle and are sort of a bottomless, you know, well for for more money. Then you've got Shelley Adelson, which I think you got to sort of treat him as as a, you know, as a faction unto himself, given the the volume of money he's willing to spend. Uh, I, I guess he spent about $100 million last cycle, too. Isn't that right? That, yeah, that is. I mean, it, some of these groups are overlapping. I'll let you finish sure. sticking through them, but we sure. can then talk about sort of how they uh, intertwine and, and uh, in places where they do sort of so, butt heads. Totally. Okay, so let's go through. So you got the Cokes. You got Adelson. You got, you got the Bush bundlers, right? The, the people that, that W sort of brought together, that, the, the Rangers. Uh, and, and what was the other name? There was the Texas Rangers. Pioneers, and, I and think. And the Pioneers, exactly. Um, and a lot of those people are Wall Street people who seem to kind of be Christie, you know, or at least until the last couple of months have seemed to, to lean towards Christie. Then you've got just a ton of Texas money, a lot of oil money, the money that, that Perry used, you know, to raise hard money. And because I don't think he had as notable uh, a super PAC as Santorum or, or Romney or Gingrich. But uh, so you've got these different factions. And I know there's some overlap, particularly between the Texas oil money and the Wall Street money that, that went towards Bush. But can you talk to us about what, you know, what are notable trends among these factions and where are they going in 2016? Yeah, I think the, mo- the, the first thing I would say, maybe the most notable thing is that these factions sort of existed, you know, uh, I think in the previous campaign finance environment, uh, just out of, you know, convenience that they weren't necessarily like cultivated by like any given operative or set of operatives, the Cokes being an exception. The Cokes clearly went out well before Citizens United and brought together these donors who were, uh, uh, you know, primarily libertarian-influenced industrialists out of their same mold um, and, and made them into a real force, although they didn't really become a force in electoral politics in the same aggressive way that they are now until after Citizens United. 
but uh, they, they were sort of out there. You know, they take in now. Sheldon Adelson has been to uh, Coke meetings. You know, Paul Singer has been to Coke meetings. So what, what, what I, I say that by way of saying, you know, that there's this overlap, but also suggesting that it's now it's sort of like free agency in the in the big donor big money world where the power is certainly in the hands of these big donors and, and the singer folks want to make sure that it stays in the hands of these big donors but it accrues even more to the um, the, the the sort of entrepreneurial super PAC operative the Carl Rove type who was able to bring together these donors and there is frankly like quite a competition that goes on between these operatives for these super PACs and I'll even add in the Coke operatives where they are trying to steal donors from other uh, coalitions that you mentioned and so the, you know the donors they know that they're being courted constantly and they sometimes complain so, about it so let me ask um, you but, let, me, let me ask you a two-part question and I want to and I want to finish kind of where you were, but a two-part question. Number one, given the debacle of 2012 for Crossroads and and most of the candidates that Rove supported, uh, does he still have credibility with, with his base of donors? And is he going to be able to raise the kind of money he raised last cycle? And B, if not, who's the next Carl Rove, either in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? Right. So first answer on, on Rove, I know, uh, in short, I don't think he'll be able to raise as much money. But let's not forget he raised a, a truly historic sum in 2012, $325 million. So it's harder to raise that much money, uh, you know, period. It's harder to raise that much money when you're doing it in a midterm as opposed to a presidential. And it's harder to raise that much money in a midterm after a presidential where you've been so spectacularly unsuccessful. Um, that said, he still has a lot of connections in this donor world, and he's sort of built this cult of personality um, around, and I'm not, I'm not saying this in a pejorative way, I mean, he's built this cult of personality around being the last, the last successful Republican operative at the presidential level. He elected the last presidential, the last Republican to the White House. So until another Republican operative elects a different Republican president to the White House, he is kind of the reigning king of the Republican side. Now, uh, we were talking a little bit uh, before I came on about what's happening on the left, and I think uh, it's really interesting over there. You have a, uh, in some ways, you have a much more orderly big money system where uh, perhaps because there was less big money flowing and less donors meddling, you had a, a, a very uh, well-defined infrastructure where you had a single presidential super PAC, Priorities USA, a single uh, Senate and House super PAC, a single uh, opposition research super PAC, and you still have that, and there is a real effort to keep that in line because all it takes, as we saw during the 2012 presidential Republican presidential primary with Sheldon Adelson, is one big donor to decide, no, I don't like this. I don't like Hillary Clinton, even though you're all trying to put this infrastructure behind her. I like you know, uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren or, you know, Cory Booker, and I'm going to write $100 million worth of checks to a super PAC that I'm going to create that is going to get, that is going to help her beat Hillary in the Democratic primary. And now even if Hillary ends up winning with the, the, the massive infrastructure and the sort of um, critical mass of, of huge Democratic donors that she has behind her, that's going to blow everything up on the left, and it's going to make a sort of more wide-open, Wild West-type, big-money atmosphere that 
Steve Mostyn, the emerging Democratic uh, super PAC donor out of uh, Houston, Texas, who I think is going to become, that sort of answer your question, the circuitous route, one of the big forces in the Democratic side. He called it a demolition derby, and he said, we're trying to work to avoid the demolition derby, but we know that we might not be able to. And that's sort of the added element of unpredictability and chaos that this new uh, system has infused our politics with that I find really exciting. Other people find really bad for democracy, but either way, it's great fun to watch and follow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ken, it's been a pleasure talking with you. We've uh, we've been with Ken Vogel, author of the book Big Money, which will be out in June uh, with public affairs. Nobody knows more about the ever-evolving campaign finance system right now than Politico's Ken Vogel. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Jeff. Take care. Hi, this is Jeff Smith, New School professor and former Missouri State Senator, sitting in for Josh King this week on Polyoptics. This week, we're talking big money. And we just spoke with Ken Vogel from Politico. And now we'll be speaking with Nick Confessori, reporter for The New York Times, who's covered the campaign finance beat in one way or another for over a decade now. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, Jeff. So, Nick, I first came across you in graduate school. I happened to read a fantastic piece you wrote for The Washington Monthly. Uh, about a decade ago now, called Welcome to the Machine. It's a, that's a classic. That's an old one. Yeah. Uh, it was about how Tom... Vintage. De- vintage, exactly. It was about how Tom DeLay and congressional Republicans had disciplined corporate lobbyists to first give to Republicans, second, hire Republicans on K Street, and third, rally legislators on behalf of Republican causes as opposed to lobbying legislators on behalf of their own interest group's cause which constituted, of course, an extraordinary reversal of the norm. Congressional leaders were now pushing lobbyists to do things instead of the other way around. And it also signified a real centralization of power towards congressional parties. Nick, your piece this week about Tom Steyer, is that how you pronounce it, or Steyer? Steyer, Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer, the billionaire environmentalist. It shows just the opposite of that piece 10 years ago, how the post-Citizens United and Free Speech Now campaign finance system has dramatically weakened parties. Can you take a couple minutes and describe the evolution here? You know, whereas once the uh, a Republican congressional party was sort of omnipotent and now parties are sort of, you know, particularly the Republican party, I think more than the Democratic party at the whims of these billionaire super PAC funders. Well, I'd say there are a couple of steps in this transformation. Uh, some are, are law, some are politics, uh, some are tradition. Um, start with McCain-Feingold, uh, which um, you know had a bunch of different effects, but but a huge one was to cut down on party money, on soft money, as it used to be called back then. Uh, so the parties couldn't be these funnels of big contributions; they couldn't be the center kind of rallying points for the you know for the large soft money contributions. So once uh, you know that avenue was shut down. You began to see that money start to flow out of the parties um, into a variety of different kinds of outside groups uh, of, uh, you know, sometimes of dubious legality uh, and sometimes not. Uh, You know, the 527 attack groups, right, were one of these uh, formats uh, that until they were kind of uh, recaptured under the FEC rules, uh, were a place where big money began to flow uh, into these groups that had, you know, a couple of important characteristics. They were controlled by operatives, not by the party. 
um, uh, and they had a direct link uh, to donors um, and put donors in the driver's seat a lot more than than the kind of the parties had. And they didn't have that kind of uh, what you would call as a political scientist, the you know intermediating function that a party does of collecting a bunch of interests and kind of sorting through them, interacting with the voters. Um, so then after that, right, you have, uh, uh, you know, Citizens United, which basically takes what had been this somewhat legal or sometimes sometimes not legal thing you could do and provided a totally clean and legal way of doing it. You could have these super PAC committees uh, that could that could basically perform the same function, take huge amounts of money from any sort or spend it on politics without any of the worry about the IRS and the disclo- uh, you know you know some of the other rules that were jamming up the 527s. Um, and then I would say another and, factor and, and you can't overlook up, this. Exactly. And you can't <laughs> overlook this. Um, uh, you know, the rise of the Tea Party and the decline of earmarks, uh, you know, uh, you know, like you know, this, this is kind of a positive or negative, depending on, on, on who you are and what you believe. But uh, it was earmarks and pork barrel spending that allowed the leaders in the legislature to, to kind of discipline members, make things happen. Um, and it was the ability of parties to raise money and make the members dependent on party leaders that also made it possible to get people to vote for stuff they were iffy on or have, you know, you know, you know, have a kind of incentive for them. So the universe now, right, are these kind of roving tribes of donors that are forming themselves into groups like uh, Paul Singer's group, which Ken Vogel, you know, has written about this week, uh, Tom Steyer's new PAC, um, uh, you know, Charles and David Koch have their club of donors. The Club for Growth actually calls itself a club uh, of free market donors. Uh, the Democracy Alliance on the left, which includes George Soros, that's a club of progressive donors. Uh, and these different tribes, as I would call them, are basically taking over the function of the party as the kind of convening authority of the big donors and the people who control most of the money. Uh, and, uh, you know, on the right, you have pretty hardcore conservative groups that are dedicated to changing the parties uh, and forcing tough votes and doing all these things that are contrary uh, to the centralizing impulse of the traditional party leadership. Let's talk a little bit about Tom Steyer and what he's trying to do. So he's a big environmentalist and Keystone XXL, stopping the pipeline from being built is his sort of raison d'etre right now in politics. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I think uh, Keystone is one of Three big policy priorities Tom Steyer has. Um, it's probably the hottest right now. Uh, you know, he likes these uh, so-called uh, regional greenhouse gas initiatives. He's trying to get states to partner up to do what the federal government can't do right now because of gridlock and disagreement, uh, you know, kind of regional partnerships to reduce greenhouse gases. Uh, and Keystone is kind of the rallying cry for activists in a real way. It's supposed to be this big signal issue uh, that can rally people uh, and and define the policy stakes. Uh, And he's very involved in that. Um, And what he's going to do next is you're going to see him uh, trying to figure out how to turn climate into a wedge issue uh, in the 2014 campaigns. There are some good reasons to be skeptical of it. Uh, Climate change doesn't really rank highly on generic lists of, of voter preferences and what issues they care about. Uh, but what Steyer and his team and his consultant Chris Lehane are trying to do is figure out ways to make it more of a hot button issue, to make it a litmus test for more voters, 
uh, to connect it to their daily lives and what's happening to them right now so it's less of an abstract concern that can't compete against jobs. So I see how that can work if you live on the Jersey Shore or how it could work you know, if you live in a part of Florida that's suffering from serious coastal erosion. Uh, you know, so I'm sure there's certain parts of the country where it might work. But those typically don't tend to be the states where the U.S. Senate control is decided. Does this stuff play in the heartland? I know in your article you quoted, I think, Lahane talking about the way that they used uh, green jobs as a positive wedge in the Virginia gubernatorial race on behalf of Terry McAuliffe. In a state that's a big coal-producing state, they were able to sort of turn the issue to their advantage in their eyes. I'm not sure if the exit polls uh, or sort of analysis bears that out. But do you think that this stuff can play as well in the heartland as it can in a few coastal spots? Uh, well, that's the big question. Um, I'm not a consultant, and I try not to play one on TV. Um, <laughs> I can tell you what they think they can do, which is to make it a, a moral issue, uh, and it can connect it. So, for example, um, they're pulling in California on some research on initiative that they did in California suggested that actually the most uh, intent climate voters uh, in the state were kind of middle-income and working-class Hispanic voters if you could connect the issue uh, of pollution and climate to uh, the kinds of things that give people, uh, you know, asthma, right, that affects their living conditions, their smog, you know, power plants are sited uh, near poor people, not rich white people, right? Yeah. So uh, that that's, was that's actually been, one way. We have a new dean at our uh, at the new school, at the Milano Graduate School where I teach. Her name is Michelle DePass. And she came from being an assistant secretary at EPA, and her her life's uh, focus has been environmental justice. You know, in exactly the way that you're talking right. about, trying to to connect this to people's lives. So, go ahead. I apologize. Yeah. For so there's there's that, and I think uh, uh, you know, they uh, believe that they can get traction by essentially painting their opponents, painting climate science quote-unquote deniers uh, as uh, people who are in hock to business interests uh, and business interests that don't have you, the voter, in mind or your good in mind. Uh, now, you know, these are all kind of classic issues, but what we saw in, in Virginia was a pitch where they said, what you're hearing right now is that Terry McAuliffe is going to hurt the coal industry and cost us jobs, uh, but what you're hearing that from is Ken Cuccinelli, who takes money uh, uh, from the coal companies and figures out how they can avoid being sued. And meanwhile, Terry McAuliffe is proposing, uh, you know, business uh, 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 things that would allow you to build green jobs, five times as many jobs as would be lost, uh, you know, uh, in the coal industry, right? So they're trying to position themselves as the future. You know, do you want to save the jobs of 1965 or the jobs of 2014? Now, you know, again, uh, I think there are all kinds of reasons to be skeptical that this can work everywhere. Um, but they certainly have the money to try. And I think that they are willing uh, to also not make every fight uh, about the climate issue. Um, and I think this is something that, uh, you know, the left sometimes is not always as adept as, as at the right. I think that Tom Steyer's pack is perfectly happy to find whatever is the best issue to attack a climate opponent on, even if it isn't the climate, uh, because the goal is to defeat the climate person who's the opponent, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's smart. So you're, we're talking a little bit about the nuances of their strategy. I saw in your piece that one of the 
senators they were considering targeting was a Democrat, Mary Landrieu from a big oil producing state, uh, Louisiana. That reminded me a little bit, of course, of what Bloomberg did targeting Democrat Mark Pryor, despite the fact that Tom Cotton, Pryor's opponent in Arkansas, would be just as vehemently pro-gun as Pryor would be or, or, or has been. So given that, what's your take on the, the Steyer philosophy that maybe you have to go after some Democrats too? Um, do you think that worked effectively for Bloomberg? Do you think it would work on environmental issues? Or do you think he would be better off focusing more on who the leader is, who the majority leader in the Senate is, mm-hmm. given the massive agenda-setting power of congressional leadership? Well, I think the goal for both uh, the Bloomberg uh, people and the Steyer people is uh, to not let your allies take you for granted. Sure. Um, and uh, they've got to the feel truth some is, pain. There's got to be yeah, some pain. Now, now what the what the Bloomberg pack did, uh, you, you know, what the mayor did there was to try to shut off contributions, right, to, to Pryor, tell people he was not a good person to give money to. Um, I'm not sure that had a huge effect on his uh, fundraising, but, uh, you know, it may have been, uh, you know, kind of more of a signal than something that they expected to actually hurt prior. Um, it's not always, you know, the case that they that they will do things uh, just to get the result they say they're trying to achieve. Um, you know, what they want to do is increase the costs to elected officials of opposing them on issues to create some kind of cost on the other side so that an official has to weigh the danger of crossing different interest groups, right? It's kind of a hypercharged interest group politics. Sure. Only in this case, uh, with Steyer on the environment and Bloomberg on the PAC, you, uh, on, on guns, what you have is an attempt by uh, a couple of wealthy donors to turn their money into stand-ins for all the voters who say they support uh, you know, the environment and say they support gun control but don't actually – you know, go to the polls and key races on those issues. Sure. And, and and to potentially be an analog for the Tea Party on the right that has done such an effective job of enforcing party orthodoxy and discouraging moderate Republicans or, you know, at least center-right Republicans from compromising with, uh, with Democrats in Congress. Yeah. I mean, it's worth pointing out that in my interview with Tom Steyer, he, he explicitly rejected the kind of Tea Party model. You know, I pushed him a bit on whether... Uh, he thought that uh, it would be, you know, important for his goals to have a Democratic Senate uh, in the U.S. Senate. And he said, you know, in this in this environment uh, where uh, climate issues are so partisan, it has to be important. Um, and he didn't think much of the idea of kind of running your allies into the ground until you can only elect people who can't be elected in a general. But this is a little bit different, right? I think that that uh, there is some emphasis here on shaping his own party and pushing them to put this issue on top. Um, but I have to imagine the bigger emphasis, right, is to create situations and races where the climate change progressive, you know, who is outspoken wins and the climate change denier loses. They want to create that dynamic. They want to have that symbol out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Lately, um, in, at least in the world of campaign finance, the Republicans have seemed to start trends and then like a cycle later, Democrats catch on. Uh, you know, you saw it in right after uh, Citizens United with Democrats were reluctant in 2010 to play the independent expenditure game. Republicans had no compunction about about doing it quickly. Do you think that uh, that 
Democrats will raise with the help of people like Steyer as much or more outside money as Republicans did, uh, as Republicans will in 2014? Before I answer that question, I would I would say it's more like an a, an ongoing arms race. I mean, as I think about it over the last, uh, uh, let's say, 20 years, uh, 15 years, right? Democrats mastered soft money first. Yep. Republicans uh, kind of mastered the the kind of political C4 thing in the early Bush years. And mm-hmm. uh, and then Democrats responded by organizing the big 527 groups, which were the first ones to really, uh, you know, and this was actually the work of, uh, of, of Clintonites, right? They didn't trust Harold, uh, I'm sorry, they didn't trust Howard Dean running the party right. uh, in the early aughts. So they set up their own parallel party uh, with Americans coming together, um, and America votes, and those are now you know, considered progressive left organizations. But they started up as just kind of parallel party groups. And a lot of what we see the Republicans do in 2010 is try to mimic that, but using the tools of citizens. Um, uh, and so uh, I see it. I see it as kind of eternal, right? So now you have the Democrats are responding to the Republicans on on citizens. Um, and they're doing a, a better job in some ways because they won in 2012 and their donors aren't ticked off. And so the you know, Democrats are now getting buy-in from more of their donors who are putting aside whatever compunctions they have about super PACs and really piling on the money. The Republican outside world, meanwhile, is fragmenting, right? And uh, as I was saying, these there are more of these roving bands of donors on the right and the Republican outside group infrastructure is fragmenting. Uh, you know, Karl Rove and Crossroads can't quite hold on to the franchise as the kind of para-party super PAC that they were. Now you have all these single-issue super PACs. They're all springing up. Uh, so I see it as this continual evolution, right, as, uh, yeah. as the uh, effects of citizens and McCain-Feingold kind of unfold uh, over the years. Now, who will win the fundraising race this time? Uh, you know, as you know, and as your view, you know, listeners know, uh, one big problem here is that we can only see uh, the keys under the streetlight, and we can't see into these political 501c4s. We don't know how much they're raising uh, and spending, except to the extent that they report some of the spending to the FEC. Um, so I, I suspect a lot of uh, conservative and Republican money is now flowing into 501c4s, flowing into in, you know more trade associations. Um, I think that uh, we're going to have to you know cast a wider net when we're looking at super PACs because there are so many of them on the right now uh, operating as candidate super PACs. I suspect if we start to add them all up, uh, we'll sort of start to see uh, more equality on the outside game than than perhaps you know some of the big numbers posted by the top groups. Uh, would lead you to think. But it's just hard to know. What we, what we can say is that um, it's very clear that Republican donors who were big players uh, in 2012 outside spending, some of them are really holding back, are not persuaded uh, it's a good use of their money. Uh, and Democratic groups To, have to made their a credit, after, sell. after last cycle, you can't expect them to think otherwise, really, can you? Well, I don't know. Like I, They made pretty big I I, 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 I kind of... Uh, Take a jaundiced view of these like uh, performance charts, right? For the super PACs, <laughs> like their 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 rate of return. I mean, you know, in every presidential race, one guy wins and one guy loses, uh, and the sample set is pretty low. Sure, I'm thinking um, I'm thinking more of the down the Senate races. Yeah, look, uh, uh, it was you know you had uh, a winning Democratic presidential candidate propping up 
everybody else and his turnout propping up everybody else. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons to think that, uh, you know, it wasn't like the inherently superior work of Democratic super PACs versus the inherently cruddy work of Republican groups that made the difference. I think it was just a luck of the draw. Huh. Huh. But the donors feel differently. Um, and what I see now is that Republican donors are kind of demanding more of a say uh, in how these groups are run and how their money is dispersed, uh, and they're seeking more influence, not necessarily over, you know, uh, the policies being advocated by these groups, but they want to be more in the driver's seat vis-a-vis the operatives and consultants who run them day to day. What about the tactics that the groups actually engage in? I know in the earlier years of the independent groups, like with uh, ACT, you know, the Democratic 527, they were focused on building a field organization and, and, and turning out voters. Uh, then in 2012, I know that uh, Koch's group, Americans for Prosperity, did some field work, but overwhelmingly it w- the money, independent money went towards negative television ads. Where do you see things going next cycle? Uh, that, that, that's a curious question. I mean, um, I think there is growing awareness on the Republican side that they uh, kind of overinvest in TV relative to, to turnout. And there's some voices on the right now that are saying we really have to do a better job at kind of integrating uh, field uh, data, targeting social media, TV advertising, um, put it all together so that it's kind of one seamless operation as the Obama people appeared to have done in 2012. That's what everyone says, and I could sit here and recite the buzzwords and analytics and sure. blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, but look, I think to boil it down to its sort of simplest components, uh, Republicans and Democrats are in an arms race to use the most advanced means possible to accomplish the basic task of politics and candidates and parties, which is to find voters, convince them to side with your candidate, and get them out to the polls to vote. It all comes down to that. Isn't it funny what a difference a cycle or two makes? Two cycles before 2012 and 2004, the Republicans appeared to have mastered the field game. Everyone, you know, I remember like a, I think it was a Matt By article in, in the Times Magazine, Who Lost Ohio? And they picked apart the field strategies on either side and showed how brilliantly Karl Rove had put the constitutional amendment on gay marriage on the ballot and and uh, revved up evangelical voters maybe in Delaware County, Ohio, and, and focused on all these exurban counties. And, and Democratic operatives were just saying, where did all these people come from? Our models hadn't accounted for all these people. We turned out everybody we thought we would, and we still lost. And so just in two cycles, you know, it seems like we've had a complete 180. Well, I think it's it's simply an amplification of, of what we have known for a long time, which is that presidents tend to win a second term. And <laughs> uh, incumbency is very valuable, right? And one way it's very valuable for presidential candidates is that if you are the incumbent, um, you are running for re-election the day you are inaugurated, if not the day after you were elected the first time. Uh, you control the party apparatus. You control the fundraising. You control uh, what is spent on what. Uh, so for uh, for Bush in 04 and Obama in 2012, um, you had the ability for these guys to start raising money and spend it very early to be building their field operations with, with whatever the state of the art was at the time. Um, and they could do it over a period of years. I mean, think about that. Mitt Romney... 
um, you know, he started. He he had the nomination essentially in the summer. He formally got it. He was not able to spend a lot of the party's money until the convention, which is crazy when you think about it. He basically had a couple of months to build and replicate something that Obama and the Democratic Party had had years to perfect, and which had its origins in the 2007 kind of Democratic you know, primary, the early parts of it, right? So. Uh, Essentially, for this advanced field stuff that you hear everyone talking about, the data, the analytics, the building of the voter files, the high-tech targeting, right, uh, it requires an investment of, of tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars over time. Uh, and the incumbent has a huge advantage in raising and deploying that money early enough to make it all work. I mean, when you think about it on those terms, it's almost a miracle that the Romney campaign could kind of stumble across the finish line on turnout. It's just It was just no contest in terms of the amount of time you had and the money you had to make it all work. So I feel like uh, the importance of advanced spending and data for voter outreach and voter ID uh, becomes, uh, it, you know, it makes incumbency all the more powerful. And I would not be surprised if we ended up just seeing, you know, you know, eight-year terms, essentially, for, and, and from now on. So insofar as as your claim is, is valid, the Democrats would, you know, dis, discounting what the economy does and, and all the other factors that go into presidential elections, the Democrats would appear to have an edge right now, given the relative unity around ready for Hillary compared to the total free-for-all that is the Republican 2016 field right now. I guess. Look, like Ready for Hillary is building a list of email addresses and, and physical addresses. It is like, you know, it's not unimportant, Jeff, yeah. but, but anyone who does this stuff for a living will tell you that that what Ready for Hillary is doing amounts to like one leg sure. of the, t the table uh, of a full-scale operation for grassroots politics. So sure. it, it can't hurt, you know. It can't hurt. It, it'll probably help. Uh I think the more important advantage for Democrats, right, is um, the Democrats back in 04, after 04, uh, you know, really started to build up their you know, voter ID uh, kind of institutions outside the party. So they started a, a company called Catalyst, which Her essentially, yeah. right, which is essentially a company that has a thousand subscribers and they are all the different. Um, progressive groups and a lot of the state parties, right? And they essentially everyone who subscribes to the data uses it to go find voters and then pumps back the new information they get when they talk to voters into Catalyst, right? So it's this thing that's been working for a while. They've, you know, the, the party has had basically a common data platform. Uh, NGP Van, right, is the company that does it, that, that they've been working off of, you know, a whole generation of Democratic field organizers have all worked off this software. It works, the state parties use it, right? Everyone kind of knows it, knows the system, and it works well. The Republicans don't actually have this yet. It's They've been trying to build it for years. And uh, the RNC has tried to build it. Um, uh, the Kochs have, and, 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 and you know, and their um, donor network have financed a alternative version called uh, Themis, or Themis uh, for the Greek goddess of knowledge. And, and uh, but it's, but that system is not really, as widely used, I think, on the right as Catalyst is on the left. And then you know, the second big thing is I just think that after Dean and after Obama's two campaigns, there was this whole uh, supple ecology of data firms and experts, right, and uh, uh, people who have done this and succeeded at it 
that are now renting themselves out that are available to the party and its candidates. You know, the Republicans have these firms, but I just feel like that world is more robust uh, and bigger and better on the Democratic side. So I think they have a, a, a decent chance at importing some of uh, the Obama kind of secret sauce into their Senate campaigns and into the next presidential campaign. On the other hand, this is what I'll say about this, it would not would not surprise me at all if the whole thing totally flops. If the Obama special sauce is Obama <laughs> and his connection to his voters, um, his ability to turn out black voters in particular, it's not clear that like any old Democrat can replicate that. Maybe Hillary Clinton can, and in fact, she does have the star power. You can't imagine it happening. But I don't think it's a given that this advantage will continue for the Democrats this year or in 2016. And, and you know what, Nick, as political scientists John Sides and uh, Lynn Vavrick write in their book, The Gamble, they don't even really believe in the special sauce. Or they believe that the special sauce is overrated and uh, that the all the mystique of surrounding the data analytics and everything um, is uh, not quite what, what, uh, what the hype made it out to be. So... We will see. Uh, we'll have we'll have a great test case in in 2016, or, or maybe we'll have a different nominee altogether. But uh, in any case, we have been joined by Nick Confessori, national political reporter for the New York Times and one of the leading experts in the country today on our campaign finance system. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Jeff. This is Jeff Smith sitting in this week for Josh King on Polyoptics. Thanks for joining us this week. We will see you here next week. Josh will be back in this seat. Take care. Bye.